Book One, Chapter One, Part One of Armadale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Chapter One. Book the First. Chapter One. THE MYSTERY OF OZIAS MIDWINTER On a warm May night, in the year 1851, the Reverend Decimus Brock, at that time a visitor to the Isle of Man, retired to his bedroom at Castletown with a serious personal responsibility in close pursuit of him, and with no distinct idea of the means by which he might relieve himself from the pressure of his present circumstances. The clergyman had reached that mature period of human life at which a sensible man learns to decline, as often as his temper will let him, all useless conflict with the tyranny of his own troubles. Abandoning any further effort to reach a decision in the emergency that now beset him, Mr. Brock sat down placidly in his shirt-sleeves on the side of his bed, and applied his mind to consider next whether the emergency itself was as serious as he had hitherto been inclined to think it. Following this new way out of his perplexities, Mr. Brock found himself unexpectedly traveling to the end in view by the least inspiriting of all human journeys, a journey through the past years of his own life. One by one, the events of those years, all connected with the same little group of characters, and all more or less answerable for the anxiety which was now intruding itself between the clergyman and his night's rest, rose in progressive series on Mr. Brock's memory. The first of the series took him back, through a period of fourteen years, to his own rectory on the Somersetshire shores of the Bristol Channel, and closeted him at a private interview with a lady who had paid him a visit in the character of a total stranger to the parson and the place. The lady's complexion was fair. The lady's figure was well-preserved. She was still a young woman, and she looked even younger than her age. There was a shade of melancholy in her expression, and an undertone of suffering in her voice, enough in each case to indicate that she had known trouble, but not enough to obtrude that trouble on the notice of others. She brought with her a fine, fair-haired boy of eight years old, whom she presented as her son, and who was sent out of the way at the beginning of the interview to amuse himself in the rectory garden. Her card had preceded her entrance into the study, and had announced her under the name of Mrs. Armadale. Mr. Brock began to feel interested in her before she had opened her lips, and when the son had been dismissed, he awaited with some anxiety to hear what the mother had to say to him. Mrs. Armadale began by informing the rector that she was a widow. Her husband had perished by shipwreck a short time after their union, on the voyage from Madeira to Lisbon. She had been brought to England, after her affliction, under her father's protection, and her child, a posthumous son, had been born on the family estate in Norfolk. Her father's death, shortly afterwards, had deprived her of her only surviving parent, and had exposed her to neglect and misconstruction on the part of her remaining relatives, two brothers, which had estranged her from them, she feared, for the rest of her days. For some time past, she had lived in the neighboring county of Devonshire, devoting herself to the education of her boy, who had now reached an age at which he required other than his mother's teaching. 
leaving out of the question her own unwillingness to part with him in her solitary position, she was especially anxious that he should not be thrown among strangers by being sent to school. Her darling project was to bring him up privately at home, and to keep him, as he advanced in years, from all contact with the temptations and the dangers of the world. With these objects in view, her longer sojourn in her own locality, where the services of the resident clergyman, in the capacity of tutor, were not obtainable, must come to an end. She had made inquiries, had heard of a house that would suit her in Mr. Brock's neighborhood, and had also been told that Mr. Brock himself had formerly been in the habit of taking pupils. Possessed of this information, she had ventured to present herself with references that vouched for her respectability, but without a formal introduction, and she had now to ask whether, in the event of her residing in the neighborhood, any terms that could be offered would induce Mr. Brock to open his doors once more to a pupil, and to allow that pupil to be her son. If Mrs. Armadale had been a woman of no personal attractions, or if Mr. Brock had been provided with an entrenchment to fight behind in the shape of a wife, it is probable that the widow's journey might have been taken in vain. As things really were, the rector examined the references which were offered to him, and asked time for consideration. When the time had expired, he did what Mrs. Armadale wished him to do. He offered his back to the burden, and let the mother load him with the responsibility of the son. This was the first event of the series, the date of it being the year 1837. Mr. Brock's memory, traveling forward toward the present from that point, picked up the second event in its turn, and stopped next at the year 1845. The fishing village on the Somersetshire coast was still the scene, and the characters were once again Mrs. Armadale and her son. Through the eight years that had passed, Mr. Brock's responsibility had rested on him lightly enough. The boy had given his mother and his tutor but little trouble. He was certainly slow over his books, but more from a constitutional inability to fix his attention on the tasks than from want of capacity to understand them. His temperament, it could not be denied, was heedless to the last degree. He acted recklessly on his first impulses and rushed blindfold at all his conclusions. On the other hand, it was to be said in his favor that his disposition was open as the day. A more generous, affectionate, sweet-tempered lad it would have been hard to find anywhere. A certain quaint originality of character, and a natural healthiness in all his tastes, carried him free of most of the dangers to which his mother's system of education inevitably exposed him. He had a thoroughly English love of the sea, and of all that belonged to it, and as he grew in years, there was no luring him away from the waterside, and no keeping him out of the boat-builder's yard. In course of time his mother caught him actually working there, to her infinite annoyance and surprise, as a volunteer. He acknowledged that his whole future ambition was to have a yard of his own, and that his one present object was to learn to build a boat for himself. Wisely foreseeing that such a pursuit as this for his leisure hours was exactly what was wanted to reconcile the lad to a position of isolation from companions of his own rank and age, Mr. Brock prevailed on Mrs. Armadale, with no small difficulty, to let her son have his way. At the period of that second event in the clergyman's life with his pupil, which is now to be related, young Armadale had practiced long enough in the builder's yard to have reached the summit of his wishes, 
by laying with his own hands the keel of his own boat. Late on a certain summer day, not long after Allan had completed his sixteenth year, Mr. Brock left his pupil hard at work in the yard, and went to spend the evening with Mrs. Armadale, taking the Times newspaper with him in his hand. The years that had passed since they had first met had long since regulated the lives of the clergyman and his neighbor. The first advances which Mr. Brock's growing admiration for the widow had led him to make in the early days of their intercourse had been met on her side by an appeal to his forbearance which had closed his lips for the future. She had satisfied him, at once and forever, that the one place in her heart which he could hope to occupy was the place of a friend. He loved her well enough to take what she would give him. Friends they became, and friends they remained from that time forth. No jealous dread of another man succeeding where he had failed embittered the clergyman's placid relations with the woman whom he loved. Of the few resident gentlemen in the neighborhood, none were ever admitted by Mrs. Armadale to more than the merest acquaintance with her. Contentedly self-buried in her country retreat, she was proof against every social attraction that would have tempted other women in her position and at her age. Mr. Brock and his newspaper, appearing with monotonous regularity at her tea-table three times a week, told her all she knew or cared to know of the great outer world which circled round the narrow and changeless limits of her daily life. On the evening in question, Mr. Brock took the armchair in which he always sat, accepted the one cup of tea which he always drank, and opened the newspaper which he always read aloud to Mrs. Armadale, who invariably listened to him reclining on the same sofa, with the same sort of needlework everlastingly in her hand. "'Bless my soul!' cried the rector, with his voice in a new octave, and his eyes fixed in astonishment on the first page of the newspaper. No such introduction to the evening's readings as this had ever happened before in all Mrs. Armadale's experiences as a listener. She looked up from the sofa in a flutter of curiosity, and besought her reverend friend to favor her with an explanation. "'I can hardly believe my own eyes,' said Mr. Brock. "'Here is an advertisement, Mrs. Armadale, addressed to your son.' Without further preface, he read the advertisement as follows. If this should meet the eye of Alan Armadale, he is desired to communicate, either personally or by letter, with Messrs. Hammock and Ridge, Lincoln's Inn Fields, London, on business of importance which seriously concerns him. Anyone capable of informing Messrs. E and R, where the person herein advertised can be found, would confer a favor by doing the same. To prevent mistakes, it is further notified that the missing Alan Armadale is a youth aged fifteen years, and that this advertisement is inserted at the insistence of his family and friends. Another family and other friends, said Mrs. Armadale. The person whose name appears in that advertisement is not my son. The tone in which she spoke surprised Mr. Brock. The change in her face when he looked up shocked him. Her delicate complexion had faded away to a dull white. Her eyes were averted from her visitor with a strange mixture of confusion and alarm. She looked an older woman than she was by ten good years at least. "'The name is so very uncommon,' said Mr. Brock, imagining he had offended her and trying to excuse himself. "'It really seemed impossible that there could be two persons—' "'There are two, interposed Mrs. Armadale. "'Alan, as you know, is sixteen years old, 
If you look back at the advertisement, you will find the missing person described as being only fifteen. Although he bears the same surname and the same Christian name, he is, I thank God, in no way whatever related to my son. As long as I live, it will be the object of my hopes and prayers that Alan may never see him, may never even hear of him. My kind friend, I see I surprise you. Will you bear with me if I leave these strange circumstances unexplained? There is past misfortune and misery in my early life too painful for me to speak of, even to you. Will you help me to bear the remembrance of it by never referring to this again? Will you do even more? Will you promise not to speak of it to Alan and not to let that newspaper fall in his way? Mr. Brock gave the pledge required of him and considerately left her to herself. The rector had been too long and too truly attached to Mrs. Armadale to be capable of regarding her with any unworthy distrust. But it would be idle to deny that he felt disappointed by her want of confidence in him, and that he looked inquisitively at the advertisement more than once on his way back to his own house. It was clear enough now that Mrs. Armadale's motives for burying her son as well as herself in the seclusion of a remote country village was not so much to keep him under her own eye as to keep him from discovery by his namesake. Why did she dread the idea of their ever meeting? Was it a dread for herself or a dread for her son? Mr. Brock's loyal belief in his friend rejected any solution of the difficulty which pointed at some past misconduct of Mrs. Armadale's. That night he destroyed the advertisement with his own hand. That night he resolved that the subject would never be suffered to enter his mind again. There was another Alan Armadale about the world, a stranger to his pupil's blood, and a vagabond advertised in the public newspapers. So much accident had revealed to him. More, for Mrs. Armadale's sake, he had no wish to discover, and more he would never seek to know. This was the second in the series of events which dated from the rector's connection with Mrs. Armadale and her son. Mr. Brock's memory, traveling on nearer and nearer to present circumstances, reached the third stage of his journey through the bygone time, and stopped at the year 1850 next. The five years that had passed had made little, if any, change in Allen's character. He had simply developed, to use his tutor's own expression, from a boy of sixteen to a boy of twenty-one. He was just as easy and open in his disposition as ever, just as quaintly and inveterately good-humored, just as heedless in following his own impulses, lead him where they might. His bias towards the sea had strengthened with his advance to the years of manhood. From building a boat, he now got on, with two journeymen at work under him, to building a decked vessel of five-and-thirty tons. Mr. Brock had conscientiously tried to divert him to higher aspirations, had taken him to Oxford to see what college life was like, had taken him to London to expand his mind by the spectacle of the great metropolis. The change had diverted Alan, but had not altered him in the least. He was as impenetrably superior to all worldly ambition as Diogenes himself. "'Which is best?' asked this unconscious philosopher." to find out the way to be happy for yourself, or to let other people try, if they can, to find it out for you. From that moment, Mr. Brock permitted his pupil's character to grow at its own rate of development, and Alan went on uninterruptedly with the work of his yacht. 
time which had wrought so little change in the son, had not passed harmless over the mother. Mrs. Armadale's health was breaking fast. As her strength failed, her temper altered for the worse. She grew more and more fretful, more and more subject to morbid fears and fancies, more and more reluctant to leave her own room. Since the appearance of the advertisement five years since, nothing had happened to force her memory back to the painful associations connected with her early life. No word more on the forbidden topic had passed between the rector and herself. No suspicion had ever been raised in Alan's mind of the existence of his namesake, and yet, without the shadow of a reason for any special anxiety, Mrs. Armadale had become, of late years, obstinately and fretfully uneasy on the subject of her son. More than once, Mr. Brock dreaded a serious disagreement between them, but Alan's natural sweetness of temper, fortified by his love for his mother, carried him triumphantly through all trials. Not a hard word or a harsh look ever escaped him in her presence. He was unchangeably loving and forbearing with her to the very last. Such were the positions of the son, the mother, and the friend when the next notable event happened in the lives of the three. On a dreary afternoon early in the month of November, Mr. Brock was disturbed over the composition of his sermon by a visit from the landlord of the village inn. After making his introductory apologies, the landlord stated the urgent business on which he had come to the rectory clearly enough. A few hours since, a young man had been brought to the inn by some farm laborers in the neighborhood who had found him wandering about one of their master's fields in a disordered state of mind, which looked to their eyes like downright madness. The landlord had given the poor creature shelter while he sent for medical help, and the doctor, on seeing him, had pronounced that he was suffering from fever on the brain, and that his removal to the nearest town at which a hospital or workhouse infirmary could be found to receive him would in all probability be fatal to his chances of recovery. After hearing this expression of opinion, and after observing for himself that the stranger's only luggage consisted of a small carpet-bag which had been found in the field near him, the landlord had set off on the spot to consult the rector, and to ask, in this serious emergency, what course he was to take next. Mr. Brock was the magistrate as well as the clergyman of the district, and the course to be taken in the first instance was to his mind clear enough. He put on his hat and accompanied the landlord back to the inn. At the inn door they were joined by Alan, who had heard the news through another channel, and who was waiting Mr. Brock's arrival, to follow in the magistrate's train and to see what the stranger was like. The village surgeon joined them at the same moment, and the four went into the inn together. They found the landlord's son on one side, and the hostler on the other, holding the man down in his chair. Young, slim, and undersized, he was strong enough at that moment to make it a matter of difficulty for the two to master him. His tawny complexion, his large, bright brown eyes, and his black beard gave him something of a foreign look. His dress was a little worn, but his linen was clean. His dusky hands were wiry and nervous, and were lividly discolored in more places than one by the scars of old wounds. The toes of one of his feet, off which he had kicked the shoe, grasped at the chair-rail through his stocking, with a sensitive muscular action which is only seen in those who have been accustomed to go barefoot. In the frenzy that now possessed him, 
it was impossible to notice to any useful purpose more than this. After a whispered consultation with Mr. Brock, the surgeon personally superintended the patient's removal to a quiet bedroom at the back of the house. Shortly afterwards, his clothes and his carpet bag were sent downstairs and were searched on the chance of finding a clue by which to communicate with his friends in the magistrate's presence. The carpet bag contained nothing but a change of clothing and two books, the plays of Sophocles in the original Greek and the Faust of Goethe in the original German. Both volumes were much worn by reading, and on the fly-leaf of each were inscribed the initials O.M. So much the bag revealed, and no more. The clothes which the man wore when he was discovered in the field were tried next. A purse, containing a sovereign and a few shillings, a pipe, a tobacco pouch, a handkerchief, and a little drinking cup of horn were produced in succession. The next object, and the last, was found crumpled up carelessly in the breast pocket of the coat. It was a written testimonial to character, dated and signed, but without any address. So far as this document could tell it, the stranger's story was a sad one indeed. He had apparently been employed for a short time as usher at a school, and had been turned adrift in the world at the outset of his illness from the fear that the fever might be infectious, and that the prosperity of his establishment might suffer accordingly. Not the slightest imputation of any misbehavior in his employment rested on him. On the contrary, the schoolmaster had great pleasure in testifying to his capacity and his character, and then expressing a fervent hope that he might under providence succeed in recovering his health in somebody else's house. The written testimonial which afforded this glimpse at the man's story served one purpose more. It connected him with the initials on the books, and identified him to the magistrate and the landlord under the strangely uncouth name of Ozias Midwinter. Mr. Brock laid aside the testimonial, suspecting that the schoolmaster had purposely abstained from writing his address on it, with the view of escaping all responsibility in the event of his usher's death. In any case, it was manifestly useless, under existing circumstances, to think of tracing the poor wretch's friends, if friends he had. To the inn he had been brought, and as a matter of common humanity, at the end he must remain for the present. The difficulty about expenses, if it came to the worst, might possibly be met by charitable contributions from the neighbors, or by a collection after a sermon at church. Assuring the landlord that he would consider this part of the question and would let him know the result, Mr. Brock quitted the inn without noticing for the moment that he had left Allen there behind him. Before he had got fifty yards from the house, his pupil overtook him. Allen had been most uncharacteristically silent and serious all through the search at the inn, but he had now recovered his usual high spirits. A stranger would have set him down as wanting in common feeling. This is a sad business, said the rector. I really don't know what to do for the best about that unfortunate man. You may make your mind quite easy, sir, said young Armadale in his offhand way. I settled it all with the landlord a minute ago. You? exclaimed Mr. Brock in the utmost astonishment. I have merely given a few simple directions, pursued Allan. Our friend the usher is to have everything he requires and is to be treated like a prince, and when the doctor and the landlord want their money, they are to come to me. 
"'My dear Alan,' Mr. Brock gently remonstrated, "'when will you learn to think before you act on those generous impulses of yours? "'You are spending more money already on your yacht-building than you can afford. "'Only think! We laid the first planks of the deck the day before yesterday,' said Alan, "'flying off to the new subject in his usual bird-witted way. "'There's just enough of it done to walk on if you don't feel giddy. "'I'll help you up the ladder, Mr. Brock.' if you'll only come and try. Listen to me, persisted the rector. I'm not talking about the yacht now. That is to say, I am only referring to the yacht as an illustration. And a very pretty illustration, too, remarked the incorrigible Alan. Find me a smarter little vessel of her size in all England, and I'll give up yacht-building tomorrow. Whereabouts were we in our conversation, sir? I am rather afraid we have lost ourselves somehow." "'I am rather afraid one of us is in the habit of losing himself "'every time he opens his lips,' retorted Mr. Brock. "'Come, come, Alan, this is serious. "'You have been rendering yourself liable for expenses "'which you may not be able to pay. "'Mind, I am far from blaming you for your kind feeling "'towards this poor, friendless man. "'Don't be low-spirited about him, sir. "'He'll get over it. "'He'll be all right again in a week or so. "'A capital fellow, I have not the least doubt,' continued Alan." whose habit it was to believe in everybody and the despair of nothing. Suppose you ask him to dinner when he gets well, Mr. Brock. I should like to find out, when we are all three snug and friendly together over our wine, you know, how he came by that extraordinary name of his, Ozias Midwinter. Upon my life, his father ought to be ashamed of himself. Will you answer me one question before I go in, said the rector, "'stopping in despair at his own gate. "'This man's bill for lodging and medical attendance "'may mount to twenty or thirty pounds before he gets well again, "'if he ever does get well. "'How are you to pay for it?' "'What's that the Chancellor of the Exchequer says "'when he finds himself in a mess with his accounts "'and doesn't quite see his way out again?' asked Alan. "'He always tells his honourable friend "'he is quite willing to leave a something or other.' "'A margin?' suggested Mr. Brock. "'That's it,' said Alan. "'I am like the Chancellor of the Exchequer. "'I am quite willing to leave a margin. "'The yacht, bless her heart, doesn't eat up everything. "'If I'm short by a pound or two, don't be afraid, sir. "'There's no pride about me. "'I'll go round with the hat and get the balance in the neighborhood. "'Deuce take the pounds, shillings, and pence. "'I wish they could all three get rid of themselves "'like the Bedouin brothers to show.' "'Don't you remember the Bedouin brothers, Mr. Brock?' "'Ali will take a lighted torch "'and jump down the throat of his brother Muli. "'Muli will take a lighted torch "'and jump down the throat of his brother Hassan, "'and Hassan, taking a third lighted torch, "'will conclude the performance "'by jumping down his own throat "'and leaving the spectators in total darkness. "'Wonderfully good, that! "'What I call real wit, "'with a fine, strong flavor about it. "'Wait a minute, where are we?' We have lost ourselves again. Oh, I remember, money. What I can't beat into my thick head, concluded Alan, quite unconscious that he was preaching socialist doctrines to a clergyman, is the meaning of the fuss that's been made about giving money away. Why can't the people who have got money to spare give it to the people who haven't got money to spare and make things pleasant and comfortable all the world over in that way? You're always telling me to cultivate ideas, Mr. Brock. "'There's an idea, and upon my life, I don't think it's a bad one.' 
Mr. Brock gave his pupil a good-humored poke with the end of his stick. "'Go back to your yacht,' he said. "'All the little discretion you have got in that flighty head of yours is left on board in your tool-chest. How that lad will end,' pursued the rector, when he was left by himself, "'is more than any human being can say. I almost wish I had never taken the responsibility of him on my shoulders.' Three weeks passed before the stranger with the uncouth name was pronounced to be at last on the way to recovery. During this period, Allan had made regular inquiries at the inn, and as soon as the sick man was allowed to see visitors, Allan was the first who appeared at his bedside. So far, Mr. Brock's pupil had shown no more than a natural interest in one of the few romantic circumstances which had varied the monotony of the village life. He had committed no imprudence, and he had exposed himself to no blame. But as the days passed, young Armadale's visits to the inn began to lengthen considerably, and the surgeon, a cautious elderly man, gave the rector a private hint to bestir himself. Mr. Brock acted on the hint immediately, and discovered that Allan had followed his usual impulses in his usual headlong way. He had taken a violent fancy to the castaway usher, and had invited Ozias Midwinter to reside permanently in the neighborhood in the new and interesting character of his bosom friend. Before Mr. Brock could make up his mind how to act in this emergency, he received a note from Allan's mother, begging him to use his privilege as an old friend, and to pay her a visit in her room. End of Chapter 1 Part 1 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com